0: Chapter Six, Part Three of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson. Chapter Six, The Treatise, Part Three. From these high and noble matters we turn to him in another vein, that of his vulgar errors. In his third book he discourses upon that pleasant insect, the glowworm. His argument might have led to some idea forestalling the wild hopes of the South Sea Scheme and those contemporary speculations which deluded our eighteenth-century forebears. However that may be, his account shows not only his accuracy of observation, but his quiet fun at the expense of his over-hopeful fellow-creatures. Quote, Wondrous things are promised from the glow-worm. From thence perpetual lights are pretended, and waters said to be distilled, which afford a luster in the night. But here, too, we cannot with reason assent, for the light made by this animal depends much upon its life. For when they are dead, they shine not, nor always while they live, but are obscure or light, according to the protrusion of their luminous parts, as observation will instruct us, for this flammeous light is not all over the body, but only visible on the inward side, in a small white part near the tail. When this is full and seemeth protruded, there ariseth a flame of a circular figure and emerald green color, which is discernible in any dark place in the day. BUT WHEN IT FALLETH AND SEEMETH CONTRACTED, THE LIGHT DISAPPEARETH, AND THE COLOR OF THE PART ONLY REMAINETH. NOW THIS LIGHT, AS IT APPEARETH AND DISAPPEARETH IN THEIR LIFE, SO DOTH IT GO QUITE OUT AT THEIR DEATH, AS WE HAVE OBSERVED IN SOME, WHICH, PRESERVED IN FRESH GRASS, HAVE LIVED AND SHINED EIGHTEEN DAYS. But as they declined, and the luminous humor dried, their light grew languid, and at last went out with their lives. True it is that a glowworm will afford a faint light, almost a day's space, when many will conceive it dead. But this is a mistake in the compute of death and term of disanimation. For indeed, it is not then dead, but if it be distended, will slowly contract itself again, which when it cannot do, it ceaseth to shine any more. Sir Thomas Brown is not only interesting because he is funny, and because he deals with such quaint popular ideas, for example, that the ostrich digesteth iron, or that peacocks are ashamed of their legs, or with the antipathy between a toad and a spider, which latter he cheerfully rebuts by saying he has seen spiders sit on a toad's head or walk all over him, which at last, upon advantage, he swallowed down and that in a few hours to the number of seven. No one can call that antipathy, or best perhaps of all, that storks will only live in republics and free states. Besides all that, he throws light upon a cultivated man's attitude in the seventeenth century to natural science. He does it also cheerfully, not with Bacon's rather solemn learning, but rather with the practical sense of a medical man brought constantly up against plain realities. He saw clearly the essential difference between speculation and matters of fact, and further he realized that in questions of fact the great key is observation, and that extended, regulated kind of observation which is called experiment. Consequently, when he was told wonderful tales about animals, as he calls them, as easy to obtain as glowworms, he just caught a few and watched them and their doings, watched them carefully too, as his remarks about their death show. When mere watching did not solve his puzzle, he tried experiment. For example, he had been told that a tiny reddish spider, called a tankt, so small that ten of the largest will hardly outweigh a grain, caused poisonous swelling and then the death of cattle and horses. Country people, he said, declared that these animals have licked the tanked. Knowing the haphazard statements many people make, he wrote with sly amusement, To satisfy the doubts of men, we have called this tradition unto experiment. We have given hereof unto dogs, chickens, calves, and horses, and not in the singular number yet never could find the least disturbance ensue." Modern men may smile at some of his scientific conclusions, but they will acknowledge that his methods were sound. By far the greater number of prose writers in this century were preoccupied with the graver matters of life and death as the quotations in this chapter show. It was perfectly natural. The time was one of strife and confusion. Men lost their lives, their fortunes, all they held dear, often with very little warning. Sir Thomas Brown was profoundly influenced by his time and its somber events. He wrote on weighty matters, as we have seen, at least as effectively as the rest. But there was another side to his genius. By its help, he sometimes rose above the gloom and turmoil, and devoted himself to question, observation, and experiment. The result was that in all his writings whether he was considering eternity or an ant, there was, in what he wrote, a reality, a point, a liveliness, which must ever keep him, in spite of his long, difficult words, one of the most lovable of our English writers. The century brought forth another man who, though the affairs of life and death were as real, as important to him as to his fellows, had a spirit of happiness like an unquenchable spring hidden in his mind and soul, which makes him unique not only in the seventeenth century, but in our literature. He was not anything but a poor man. His life, in outward circumstances, was neither particularly fortunate nor successful. He was so little known that when his prose and poetry, after being lost for many years, were found in the last decade of last century, in unsigned manuscripts, on a second-hand bookstall in a street, even scholars were puzzled, and for a while supposed them to be Henry Vaughan's but the prose was so obviously unlike his. Vaughn struggled bravely against the miseries of his day, but the writer of this newly found book passed them by in his joy at being alive in so incomparable a world as this, the world as God has made it, not as man has marred it. After much toil, Mr. Dobell proved that both prose and poetry were written by Thomas Traherne. From his earliest years he possessed wonderful gifts, enabling him to see and enjoy the beauties and glories of the natural world. Quote, By the gift of God they attended me into the world, and by his special favor, I remember them till now. Verily they seem the greatest gifts his wisdom could bestow, for without them all other gifts had been dead and vain. They are unattainable by book, and therefore I will teach them by experience. Certainly Adam in Paradise had not more sweet and curious apprehensions of the world than I, when I was a child. The corn was orient, and immortal wheat, which never should be reaped, nor was ever sown. I thought it had stood from everlasting to everlasting. The dust and stones of the street were as precious as gold. The gates were at first the end of the world. The green trees, when I saw them first, Through one of the gates, transported and ravished me. Their sweetness and unusual beauty made my heart to leap, and almost mad with ecstasy. They were such strange and wonderful things. Boys and girls tumbling in the street and playing were moving jewels. I knew not that they were born or should die but all things abided eternally as they were in their proper places. Eternity was manifest in the light of the day, and something infinite behind everything appeared, which talked with my expectation and moved my desire. The city seemed to stand in Eden or to be built in heaven, The streets were mine, the temple was mine, the people were mine, their clothes and gold and silver were mine, as much as their sparkling eyes, fair skins, and ruddy faces. The skies were mine, and so were the sun and moon and stars, and all the world was mine, and I the only spectator and enjoyer of it. I knew no churlish proprieties, footnote properties and footnote, nor bounds nor divisions, but all proprieties and divisions were mine, all treasures and the possessors of them, so that with much ado, I was corrupted and made to learn the dirty devices of the world, which now I unlearn. AND BECOME, AS IT WERE, A LITTLE CHILD AGAIN, THAT I MAY ENTER INTO THE KINGDOM OF GOD. END quote. unsullied joy in nature is peculiar to him, not in kind, but in its intensity. Others have loved, but not in quite that passionate way. But his sense of real as distinguished from legal or material ownership has been shared by others. Vaughan, for example, under the title The Importunate Fortune, had written these beautiful lines, quote, I care not for your wondrous hat and purse, make me a Fortunatus with thy curse. Why dost thou tempt me with thy dirty ore, and with thy riches make my soul so poor? Is it best to be confined to some dark, narrow chest, and idolize thy stamps? Footnote. That is to say, the devices stamped upon gold coins. End footnote when I may be lord of all nature and not slave to thee. The world's my palace. I'll contemplate there and make my progress into every sphere. The chambers of the air are mine. Those three well-furnished stories my possession be. I hold them all in copite Footnote. In my own right. And footnote and stand propped by my fancy there. End quote. The same idea is found in one of mister J. C. Squire's poems. He is still writing poetry. Quote, you are my sky, beneath your encircling kindness, my meadows all take in the light and grow. Laugh with the joy you've given, the joy you've given, and open in a thousand buds and blow." After the strife and passion of the seventeenth century, the eighteenth, which cared rather for the things of the head than of the heart, more for explanation and understanding than for admiration and pleasure, may strike us as dull and chilly. Its books were mainly concerned with the reasons of things. They dealt with the ways in which men think, the reasons why they should do this rather than that. With the best forms of government, with the soundest plans for increasing wealth and so forth we will not choose quotations from any of these but draw instead from the great critic of books and writers dr johnson and from that statesman whose political speeches rose to the highest levels of oratory in choosing from dr johnson's writings it seems suitable to take an extract from his account of Sir Thomas Brown, not only because he is still in our minds, but because the passage itself, in its careful weighing of the man and his circumstances, is a very fine model of literary criticism. Quote, It is not on the praise of others but on his own writings that he is to depend for the esteem of posterity, of which he will not be easily deprived, while learning shall have any reverence among men. For there is no science in which he does not discover some skill, and scarce any kind of knowledge, profane or sacred, abstruse or elegant, which he does not appear to have cultivated with success. His exuberance of knowledge and plenitude of ideas sometimes obstructs the tendency of his reasoning and the clearness of his decisions. On whatever subject he employed his mind, there started up immediately so many images before him that he lost one by grasping another. His memory supplied him with so many illustrations, parallel or dependent notions, that he was always starting into collateral considerations, but the spirit and vigor of his pursuit always gives delight, and the reader follows him without reluctance through his mazes, in themselves flowery and pleasing and ending at the point originally in view. He fell into an age in which our language began to lose the stability which it obtained in the time of Elizabeth, and was considered by every writer as a subject on which he might try his plastic skill, by molding it according to his own fancy. Milton, in consequence of this encroaching license, began to introduce the Latin idiom, and Brown, though he gave less disturbance to our structures and phraseology, yet poured in a multitude of exotic words. His style is indeed a tissue of many languages, a mixture of heterogeneous words Brought together from distant regions with terms originally appropriated to one art and drawn by violence into the service of another. He must, however, be confessed to have augmented our philosophical diction, and in defence of his uncommon words and expressions, we must consider that he had uncommon sentiments and was not content to express in many words that idea for which any language could supply a single term. End quote. Nowadays more people read than in Dr. Johnson's time, and they read a greater quantity. Nothing can be worse for any one's mind than to read much and often without stopping to think and criticise. Criticism of what has been read is not only needed to push a person through some examination or to help him to win credit for being clever, but it is mentally essential to let the words of a book or magazine trickle over what we call our minds with no more attention to it Than a duck seems to pay to pond water running off its back is to waste time and take the edge off our understanding. This passage from Johnson may at first seem hard. He used long, if not such exotic words as Brown's. But anyone who takes the trouble to read it carefully will see what sound sense it contains. Dr. Johnson gives Sir Thomas Brown all credit due to his knowledge and his use of it. He explains that his meandering and sometimes puzzling style is really the result of his desire to express everything that came tumbling into his mind. Then, lastly, he turns to the question of Brown's language and having recalled the fact that English style itself was changing, and so left much freedom of choice to writers, he explains why the wise old doctor introduced so many foreign words. His sentences, like his thoughts, may be crowded and full of meaning, but he had no intention of filling his pages with a crowd of words, when, by coining a new one from some other language, he could say precisely what he had to say in one. Perhaps he had not fully realized how difficult it is to persuade some people to use a good dictionary and to use it constantly. Too often now, criticism is identified with finding fault. Johnson thought that a critic's main duty is to weigh and estimate, to unfold, and to explain. Edmund Burke was the great political orator of the 18th century. In his Thoughts on the Present Discontents, in which his object was, as he said, to examine into the causes of public disorders, He discussed the party system, arguing that if any good was to be done in public affairs, men who agreed on the means of doing that good must work together, that if they broke off from those who thought and felt with them, trying to work singly, they were only wasting time and force. He then, in the following simple but vigorous sentences, taught the way of living and working in a community such as our country is. Quote, I remember an old scholastic aphorism, footnote, that is to say, a maxim of the scholastic philosophy, the great system of thought built up by thinkers called the schoolmen in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, end footnote, which says that the man who lives wholly detached from others must be either an angel or a devil. When I see in any of these detached gentlemen of our times the angelic purity, power, and beneficence, I shall admit them to be angels. In the meantime, we are born only to be men. We shall do enough if we form ourselves to be good ones. It is therefore our business to cultivate in our minds, to rear to the most perfect vigor and maturity, every sort of generous and honest feeling that belongs to our nature to bring the dispositions that are lovely in private life into the service and conduct of the commonwealth, so to be patriots as not to forget we are gentlemen, to cultivate friendships and to incur enmities, to have both strong but both selected, in the one to be placable, in the other immovable, to model our principles to our duties and our situations, to be fully persuaded that all virtue which is unpracticable is spurious, and rather to run the risk of falling into faults in a course which leads us to act with effect and energy than to loiter out our days without blame and without use. Public life is a situation of power and energy. He trespasses against his duty who sleeps upon his watch, as well as he that goes over to the enemy. End quote. By enmities, Burke here means those which are political not personal. He assumes that men will and must differ on public questions, and he says, quote, I find it impossible to conceive that anyone believes in his own politics or thinks them to be of any weight who refuses to adopt the means of having them reduced into practice, end quote. One of the consequences of having definite principles like this is disagreement with those who do not share them, but it need not lead to personal enmity. One of the finest passages in Burke's works occurs in his pamphlet Reflections on the Revolution in France. Whether or no people admire the results of the French Revolution whether or no they share Burke's precise opinions and feelings concerning Marie Antoinette, no one with ordinary humanity or any sense for fine literature can deny the dignified splendor of Burke's eloquence. Quote, History, who keeps a durable record of all our acts, and exercises her awful censure over the proceedings of all sorts of sovereigns, will not forget either those events or the era of this liberal refinement in the intercourse of mankind. History will record that on the morning of the 6th of October, 1789, the King and Queen of France After a day of confusion, alarm, dismay, and slaughter, lay down under the pledged security of public faith, to indulge nature in a few hours of respite and troubled melancholy repose. From this sleep the queen was first startled by the voice of the sentinel at her door, who cried out to her to save herself by flight. THAT THIS WAS THE LAST PROOF OF FIDELITY HE COULD GIVE, THAT THEY WERE UPON HIM, AND THAT HE WAS DEAD. INSTANTLY HE WAS CUT DOWN. A BAND OF CRUEL RUFFIANS AND ASSASSINS, reeking WITH HIS BLOOD, RUSHED INTO THE CHAMBER OF THE QUEEN, AND PIERCED WITH A HUNDRED STROKES OF BAYONETS AND PONIARDS THE BED. From whence this persecuted woman had but just had time to fly almost naked, and through ways unknown to the murderers, had escaped to seek refuge at the feet of a king and husband, not secure of his own life for a moment. I hear, and rejoice to hear, that the great lady has borne that day. AND THAT SHE BEARS ALL THE SUCCEEDING DAYS, THAT SHE BEARS THE IMPRISONMENT OF HER HUSBAND, AND HER OWN CAPTIVITY, AND THE EXILE OF HER FRIENDS, AND THE INSULTING ADULATION OF ADDRESSES, AND THE WHOLE WEIGHT OF HER ACCUMULATED WRONGS, WITH A SERENE PATIENCE, IN A MANNER SUITED TO HER RANK AND RACE, and becoming the offspring of a sovereign distinguished for her piety and her courage, that like her she has lofty sentiments, that she feels with the dignity of a Roman matron, that in the last extremity she will save herself from the last disgrace, and that if she must fall, she will fall by no ignoble hand. It is now sixteen or seventeen years since I saw the Queen of France, then the Dauphiness at Versailles, and surely never lighted on this orb, which she hardly seemed to touch, a more delightful vision. I saw her just above the horizon, decorating and cheering the elevated sphere she just began to move in glittering like the morning star, full of life and splendor and joy. Oh, what a revolution, and what an heart must I have to contemplate without emotion that elevation and that fall. Little did I dream when she added titles of veneration to those of enthusiastic, distant, respectful love THAT SHE SHOULD EVER BE OBLIGED TO CARRY THE SHARP ANTIDOTE AGAINST DISGRACE CONCEALED IN THAT BOSOM. LITTLE DID I DREAM THAT I SHOULD HAVE LIVED TO SEE SUCH DISASTERS FALLEN UPON HER IN A NATION OF GALLANT MEN, IN A NATION OF MEN OF HONOR AND OF cavaliers. I thought ten thousand swords must have leapt from their scabbards to avenge even a look that threatened her with insult, but the age of chivalry is gone, that of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished for ever. Never, never more shall we behold that generous loyalty to rank and sex, that proud submission, that dignified obedience, that subordination of the heart, which kept alive, even in servitude itself, the spirit of an exalted freedom, the unbought grace of life, the cheap defense of nations, The nurse of manly sentiment and heroic enterprise is gone. It is gone that sensibility of principle, that chastity of honor, which felt a stain like a wound, which inspired courage while it mitigated ferocity, which ennobled whatever it touched, and under which... Vice itself lost half its evil by losing all its grossness. End quote. It is impossible in a small space to give an idea which can in any way be adequate of the prose of the nineteenth century in England. Theology, philosophy, scientific speculation, criticism, politics, social questions, Art, industry, all these and more were its subject matter. We can but choose, with what skill we may, from the greatest or most characteristic writers. The first shall be Shelley, who, great poet as he was, showed in his defense of poetry the highest gifts of a maker of imaginative prose. Quote, Poetry turns all things to loveliness. It exalts the beauty of that which is most beautiful, and it adds beauty to that which is most deformed. It marries exaltation and horror, grief and pleasure, eternity and change. It subdues to union under its light yoke All irreconcilable things. It transmutes all that it touches, and every form moving within the radiance of its presence is changed by wondrous sympathy to an incarnation of the spirit which it breathes. Its secret alchemy turns to potable gold the poisonous waters which flow from death through life. It strips the veil of familiarity from the world and lays bare the naked and sleeping beauty which is the spirit of its forms. As a rule, it is impossible to choose for such a book as this suitable quotations to illustrate the place and value in our literature of our English novels. The following extract, indeed, will hardly do that, but Lord Beaconsfield, though some people still seem not to recognize his power as a novelist, incontestably possessed an opulent imagination and the power of drawing pictures, so that, according to our several capacities, we can see what he saw. Tancred is not generally considered his finest novel, but it has many beautiful passages, among which this description of Jerusalem by moonlight is not the least lovely. The broad moon lingers on the summit of Mount Olivet, but its beam has long left the garden of Gethsemane and the tomb of Absalom. THE WATERS OF KEDRON, AND THE DARK ABYSS OF Jehoshaphat, FULL FALLS ITS SPLENDOR, HOWEVER, ON THE OPPOSITE CITY, VIVID AND DEFINED IN ITS SILVER BLAZE. A LOFTY WALL, WITH TURRETS AND TOWERS, AND FREQUENT GATES, UNDULATES WITH THE UNEQUAL GROUND WHICH IT COVERS. As it encircles the lost capital of Jehovah, it is a city of hills far more famous than those of Rome. For all Europe has heard of Sion and Calvary, while the Arab and the Assyrian and the tribes and nations beyond are as ignorant of the Capitolian and Aventine mounts as they are of the Malvern or the Chiltern Hills, the broad steep of Sion, crowned with the Tower of David, nearer still Mount Moriah with the gorgeous temple of the God of Abraham, but built, alas, by the child of Hagar, and not by Sarah's chosen one, close to its cedars and its cypresses, its lofty spires and airy arches, the moonlight falls upon Bethesda's pool. Farther on, entered by the gate of St. Stephen, the eye, though 'tis the noon of night, traces with ease the street of grief, a long winding ascent to a vast cupelid pile that now covers Calvary called the street of grief, because there the most illustrious of the human, as well as of the Hebrew race, the descendant of King David, and the divine son of the most favored of women, twice sank under that burden of shame, which is now, throughout all Christendom, the emblem of triumph and honor." JERUSALEM BY MOONLIGHT The moon has sunk behind the Mount of Olives, and the stars in the darker sky shine doubly bright over the sacred city. The all-pervading stillness is broken by a breeze that seems to have traveled over the plain of Sharon from the sea. It wails among the tombs and sighs among the cypress groves. The palm tree trembles as it passes, as if it were a spirit of woe. Is it the breeze that has traveled over the plain of Sharon from the sea, or is it the haunting voice of prophets mourning over the city they could not save? Their spirits surely would linger on the land where their Creator had deigned to dwell And over whose impending fate Omnipotence had shed human tears. This is not the futile, fine writing of some man who has nothing to say, but who, all the same, wishes to say it splendidly. There are no purple patches. It is charged with reality and rests upon a passion-filled past. End of Chapter 6 Part 3